Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Central London service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Morning, everyone. And happy third anniversary. I can report I've just been in the South Service. They have their largest ever Sunday morning attendance on a sort of non-special event. So wonderful to be there, wonderful to see all the growth and energy, and wonderful to be here and feel God's presence as I came in uh, as we were worshipping. Last Sunday, as the worship started, a pain started to develop in my heart. Uh, I did not at the time think I'm in danger of a heart attack and, uh, you know, run out to a and it, 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 it didn't feel like that. It felt like God was at work in my heart. And during the rest of the service, this con- or during the rest of the worship, this continued and intensified during Joe's wonderful sermon on prayer. And I can only conclude that God was trying to do something in my heart, and it felt like it was a softening process, uh, a, uh, a reawakening of desire for him to do something special and unusual in our church, in our city, and in our nation at this point in time. We're in the middle of a series which fits in with that, which we've called Awaken. We're looking back at times where God has worked in unusual ways, and the church has awoken, which has been a great blessing to the church and often to wider society as well. Let me just start with an example. In 1904, something very unusual started to happen in South Wales. There was a spiritual awakening. The newspapers reported that it was what everybody was talking about. Politics was not the filler, nor the weather, not even the football, everyone was talking about this awakening. The services in church were different. I mean, firstly, they happened seven days a week, every evening, and there was an unusual intensity in the singing, a fervency in the prayer. If we can have a slide up, there's a picture of uh, of of one of them there. These services would typically go on till 11 or even midnight every night of the week. And as they did so, people's lives started changing for the better. One minister described how, described people who he described as very intelligent men who'd lived exemplary lives, suddenly had this sense of the fear of God come upon them. He said they turned deathly white and called out that others would come and pray with them and help them. There were miners who came out of the mine after the evening shift, not regular churchgoers, and described this strange compulsion to go to the church. On arriving, the church service still going, they stood in the foyer and started to weep as they became aware of their spiritual condition. And without even sitting, stand, uh, taking step into the auditorium, they surrendered their lives to God. Ministers described in somewhat Victorian language, rather unsurprisingly, given it was the Victorian times, that desperate characters became holy men. And those who had not been in church for 20 years returned. And these were not just isolated incidences. In 1904, it's estimated that 100,000 
women and men across South Wales came to faith. And in, to give you an example, of a, a sort of local example, in Abertilia, smallish mining town, 3,000 people came to faith in a 10-week period. One in 10 of the population of that mining town. Everyone would have known someone who'd been affected by the awakening. The South Wales Gazette kept a record of people coming to faith. A bit like the Premier League, but this was churches and awakening. It reported that in some churches in South Wales had seen 450 people come to faith that year alone. King Street Baptist was an outlier trailer. It had seen a mere 27 people come to faith in the year, a number which most churches today would be absolutely thrilled with. And this didn't just affect services in church or individuals who went to church. It spread. It affected the whole of society in some very good ways. Men, who'd been una- men who had never taken their whole pay packet home, they'd always found themselves stopping at the pub to drink it away, took the whole pay packet home for the first time for 17 years. Now, if you are an adult child of an alcoholic, you understand just what a significant thing that is. It's reported that uh, houses became furnished and women and children properly dressed as a result. The pubs became practically empty, not because everyone who had been drinking was now in church, but more because of a broader sense that dependency on alcohol and alcoholism, which those pubs in that cultural setting represented, was a destructive thing. Bridges and walls, instead of being covered with obscene remarks, were now covered with lines from the Bible and hymn books. Crime fell, and the police and magistrates had quiet days. There was a general, it was reported, raising of the standard of public life. Anyone know anywhere where this might be of benefit right now? David Lloyd George who became Prime Minister at that point, a Welsh MP, said that this movement was rocking Welsh life like a great earthquake. It was an extraordinary time. And this series that we are doing now, which we have called Awaken, we are doing with two intent behind it. The first is this, to remind us of what is possible. Was it Habakkuk the prophet who said, renew again in our day the deeds of the past? And that is our cry as we're looking at Awaken, is we want to remind each other of some of the extraordinary things that happened. I, I, maybe I should have done, but I could spend the next however long, 25 minutes, just telling stories from Penzance, where there was an awakening in the 1850s that affected 15 to 24-year-olds. If you were older, it was too bad. But if you were young, it had a deep effect too. And we'll look at, actually, the extraordinary changes in South Korea as, there's been, as there was an awakening there late in the 20th century. We could look at rural China, where since the missionaries left, it's estimated that there are now 100 million Christians. We want to remind ourselves 
what has happened in the past, that there may be an appetite, a longing, a pain in your heart, that the same may happen again. If it's happened in the past, why should it not happen again in our day? The passage that Joel read is part of a a vision that Ezekiel had in Babylon. For him to say, I saw the temple, would have set the exile's hearts racing. For it was talk of the center of the spiritual life and a promise of renewal of the nation. But actually, Ezekiel isn't over-preoccupied at this point with the building of the temple, but the effect of the temple. He said, once the temple's rebuilt, this is what will happen. And I want to look at it because it fits in very well with our theme. He said, and his vision, typical of prophetic visions, is almost dreamlike. There are elements which carry import, purpose. They say something. It's not to be treated as literally. But there's a man, it says. He says, Ezekiel says, there's a man who guides him around the temple. As he's going around the temple, he sees water trickling out of the threshold. Water. In the New Testament, often applied to the Holy Spirit, we're to read the whole Bible through the eyes of the New Testament. So we don't need to wait. We can understand straight away. This has symbolic power. This is talking about the temple, the place where God is worshipped, and then the overflow or the trickling out of the Holy Spirit. And it's a trickle. And Ezekiel says initially it just comes up to his ankles. Then he goes a thousand cubits, which is about 450 meters. And he finds that the water now is no longer at the ankles, but it's at the knees. And then another 450 meters and it's at the waist. And then again, and it is so deep that he cannot stand in it. He says the only way to cross it would be to swim. In other words, the water, as it gets further from the temple, is building up its intensity and its impact. And the passage doesn't actually seem to say very much about the individuals getting into the river, though it is often applied that way, but actually about the impact of the river. We find that this fresh water flows out to the sea, where, of course, it comes to Salt water. Now, what happens when salt water and fresh water mix? What do you get? It's not a trick question. And you all know the answer. You get salt water. Unless you're in Ezekiel's vision, where the very opposite happens. The visceral quality, the extraordinary power of this fresh water is such that as it sweeps into the sea, the salt water turns fresh. That's what happens sometimes when you get in the way of the river of the Holy Spirit. We had someone in one of our services who made their first decision to follow Christ after a Holy Spirit day on Alpha last term. Without anybody telling them to, they went home and got rid of a whole load of things in their house which were not good for them. It was salt water. But because they got fresh water in them, they went home, they got rid of a whole of stuff. They said, these relationships cannot be redeemed. They are not good. They're finishing. And began to invest in a whole set of new relationships. Well, in Ezekiel's terms, the fresh water is turning salt water 
fresh. Who could do with a bit of that today? I'm sure plenty of us could. How much could our city, your community, your street, the house in which you live, do with some fresh water that turns stagnant, stagnant things to life? And as we see this fresh water flow, we also see abundance everywhere. God is a God of abundance. Swarms of living creatures, not just a few. Have you ever tried to count a swarm? It's just, you can't. All you can say is there's lots. Swarms of living creatures and lots of fish. Because that too is the nature of what God does when we're in the full flow of receiving his spirit. There's just an abundance. There was an abundance in South Korea between 1960 and 1990. In 1960, there was less than one million Christians in South Korea, 600,000. By 1990, one in three members of the population of South Korea owned Christ. What had happened? There was an abundance. Swarms. Which parts of your life, your house, your work situation, your community could do with an abundance of blessing? I'll take that. But of course, because there's an abundance, we can all take that. And of course, it's not just for us anyway. It's to flow out. We see then this fresh water turning salt water fresh. We see an abundance of life. And then we see along the banks, we see fishermen standing, laying out their nets. New jobs are being created. This isn't just affecting people's spiritual lives. Now the economy is benefiting. Prosperity is starting to rise. 1960 in South Korea, it was subsistence farming. 1990, it was one of the wealthiest nations in the world. Economists talk about the economic miracle. Experts say that it's hard to imagine there is not a link between people's renaissance of their spiritual lives and the economic prospering of the the nation at the same time. There are fishermen on the edges edges of the water. And then we see that these trees have fruit on them. Well, if they're trees, who knows trees take a long time to grow. In other words, this river's been going for a while. And as the trees grow, there's fruit. And we're told the fruit is for food. Whenever there is an awakening, the hungry get fed. And I'm not using that as a spiritual metaphor. I'm saying that those in greatest need always get blessed when there is an awakening. Sometimes, oftentimes, when there is an awakening, it starts with and sometimes exclusively resides with those that need it the most. The fruit is for food and we're told that the leaves are for healing. I'm often amazed in this 21st century world that we live in with all its medical improvements that so many of us, me included, are still sick in one way or another. The Jeffries brothers were 15 years old, or one of them was at least, during the meetings of the Welsh Awakening. They gave their lives to Christ during those meetings. Once, as they reached adulthood, they started preaching. Not only did they start preaching all up and down this nation, there's a slide of 
uh, one of their meetings. Um, but they would see, they would go and they would pray for people and many, many people would be healed. I was raised in Bedford, a town about 50 miles north of here. There is a church in Bedford that was started as a result of the Jeffries brothers' visit to town. They came in, they booked the biggest hall in town, the Corn Exchange, which is still there, and then they shared how Jesus can make so much difference in your life, and then they showed people by praying for the sick. And in the basement of the building, of the church building, used to be certainly when I was raised there, there were wheelchairs and there were crutches which they had kept from those times. So as the lame walked and threw away their crutches, a new church was started as a result of the awakening. But in Revelation 22, the very last chapter in the Bible, it picks up this passage and talks about a river flowing. And there's two important things about it. First of all, the river flows from the temple down the main street of the city. No longer a rural picture, but an urban picture. A wonderful picture of God's church today at the heart of the city with the river flowing out. But it also says now that these leaves are not just for the healing of individuals. It's not just my dodgy knee that gets healed now. It's for the healing of nations. Anyone notice that there's a few nations that could do with some peacemaking amongst them right now? Anyone notice there's a few nations, including our own, that are rather divided at the moment? Anyone notice that there are broken nations where government has broken down and become a place for terrorism and for sickness uncontrolled and poverty there and in the region. And John is picking up Ezekiel's vision and he's saying, now the river is flowing such a way that there is good news for Yemen and there is good news for the Sudan and there's good news for Venezuela and there's good news for the United Kingdom. And that is what Ezekiel is foreseeing as he preaches this. But you may say, well, what about the temple? Just Help me there with surely, David, you're not suggesting we all move to Jerusalem. Nice place, but... Well, no, of course, the temple is picked up in the New Testament. We read the whole Bible through New Testament eyes, and the temple is applied in three ways. None of them a physical building. The first of them is to Jesus himself. He says, I could tear this down and rebuild it in three days. And his whole crowd is like, it took Herod 46 years to build that temple. But the temple he was talking about was his body. He's saying, if you want relationship with God, you no longer have to go to a building. You come to me, it's a relationship. It's now mobile. It's everywhere. It's anywhere. And it's anytime, because now it's about relationship with me. I'm the temple, said Jesus. And then, of course, he ascends. He goes to the Father. So you think... Now what do we do? Where's the temple now? And he says, well, I am going to come and build the church. 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 6. Those words, you there, are plural. He's saying, now you're the temple. You're Jesus on earth. You're the building out of which the river is to flow in Ezekiel's terms. And then previous to that, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul has already said, you you, you, you're the temple. 
So it's all of us, and it's every one of us. And Ezekiel's vision here, read through New Testament eyes, says, get full of the Spirit, every one of us. And then let the river flow in your workplace, flow in your family, flow in your community. And may we do that together. And may we do that as individuals. I want to remind you this morning what is possible. And I want to stir a hunger, a thirst, a desire that we would see the same again in our time. Let me make very quickly a few comments because I want to make sure we have time to pray before we're done. First of all, remember, God always gets his work done on earth through the Holy Spirit. He uses people. He uses plans. He uses thinking. He uses money. But it's always in the end, not by might nor by power, but by his spirit, as Zechariah said. Now, how do we get more of his spirit? Because the irony is you can't. You have no control at all over the Holy Spirit. I have no control. As Jesus said when talking to Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wills. We all know it's patently ridiculous to walk out of the mermaid, stand up by St. Paul's and go, wind blow. It's just the same with the Holy Spirit. We are without control. It should give us a sense of powerlessness. I want him. But unless he chooses to, I can do nothing about it. Now, that shouldn't breed passivity, but it should breed prayer. So because we're dependent, we pray. A child who is hungry does not simply think, I'll go to my room and wait for one of my parents to notice, so they give me some food. A child comes to the parent and says, I'm hungry. Or just gets crabby and you have to work it out. But the child asks, and I want to encourage us, devote yourself to prayer. Give yourself to prayer. I'm gonna, I just want to mention a few heroes of prayer. This is not so that you disqualify yourself from praying by thinking, I'm not like this person. I'm not sure that any of us are like this person. It's to inspire us. It's that if you were to do a millimeter of what they're doing, we would all benefit as a result. James Fraser gave himself to prayer amongst the Lisu tribe in rural southwestern China. His journals tell of his prayers and are worth reading today. It's estimated that now 40% of the population in that part of China go to one of the 1,300 churches started that can all be traced back to that one man's diligent, ongoing prayer. George Muller, raised in, in, in Victorian monies, 1.5 million pounds, never asked for anything as he fed, clothed, and housed orphans. And as one person said, whenever I doubt whether God's alive, I go to my room, I turn out the lights so I can see the lights of George Muller's orphanages on Ashley Downs. And as I see those lights, and I know that those are only there because that man has prayed, I know God is alive. Evan Roberts, leader of the Awakening in South, in, in South Wales fell asleep while praying one night for more of the Spirit of God. If you feel spiritually bankrupt and empty, 
It's not a bad place to start. It was how Evan Roberts felt, and he prayed until he fell asleep. And then he awoke in the middle of the night to find the room full of God's presence. And he stayed awake for the next four hours praying. And he knew by the end of that that he was different, and he knew that there was to be an awakening in the nation that he loved so deeply. Incidentally, he, was, he had left school at the age of 11. Whoever you are, from whatever background, whatever nationality, whatever family background, however much education you haven't got is utterly irrelevant when it comes to spiritual awakening. Not by power or by might, says the Lord, but by my spirit. And so I want to encourage us, as I come into close, to make ourselves available. It's not complicated. Just like, I'm here. I'll do what you want. I love doing the Beneath the Surface on Wednesday evening, where one of the things we got to talk about was how both men and women are called, gifted, are called and gifted by God to do all sorts of different things in the kingdom, and there is no difference in terms of their leadership roles. That all leadership roles in the kingdom come down to calling, competency, and character, not down to gender. There was one of the young ladies who was powerfully used in the Welsh Awakening, was Olwyn Davis. She only had four points in the sermon that she preached, but they were this. Have, hearts that are, have, your, have a heart that is clear in the sight of God. Is your heart clear in God's sight? Is there anything on your conscience that you need to sort out? Her second point was, have you forgiven everyone who's hurt you? Or are you harboring a grudge or unforgiveness in some part of your inner man? Are you ready to obey the Spirit of God implicitly? If ever there's a nudge, you're like, I'm on my way. Do you trust God implicitly? That was Olwyn Davis's challenge. Maybe the band could come back, please. The anthem of the Welsh Revival, sometimes called the love song of the revival, likens God's love to being poured out, like God's love being poured out like water. And I'd like to read you a couple of verses of it just before we pray. And I want you to notice how often God's love, the metaphor of water, is used. Here is love, vast as an ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the Prince of Life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. On the Mount of Crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide, and through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love, like mighty rivers, poured incessant from above. And heaven's peace and perfect justice kiss a guilty world in love. Let's stand together. Let's open our hearts, and I want to pray, and I'm going to ask that this hymn that was sung would become a reality amongst us. And I want to ask, too, that what 
I think has been started in my heart may also begin in your heart. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and you would kiss this guilty world with love. We want to pray for the oceans of God's love to flow amongst us. I want to ask for the incessant, the continual flow of the Holy Spirit amongst us. I want to ask, Heavenly Father, that you would start to work or you would continue to work in our hearts. And that you would make us dependent on you. That in all our smartness and education and sophistication and technology, that we'd realize that none of that is any good unless your spirit blows upon us. And so we offer up to you the things we value most, the relationships we have, the assets that some of us own the technology we love, the careers we're in or long to be in, we offer it all to you. And we acknowledge that it is of no worth compared with the utter ultimate worth of you. You are more precious than silver. You are more costly than gold. You are more beautiful than diamonds. Nothing I desire compares with you. you do that work in our hearts and lives, I pray that for those of us that need to surrender this morning, I pray there would be that giving up of my life and that giving to you. Be an opportunity in a minute for those that want to, to come to the front to receive prayer. And I sense that we should give an opportunity for those that know God's speaking to them about their prayer life, for those who God is asking to surrender, and those who have a longing that is growing in their heart, who, who, or who want, who want to grow in that, that longing, that desire. So it's those, those who know there's a, who want to have an appetite, Maybe we hunger and thirst a little bit. You're saying, would you do something? Would you break my heart? Those that God is calling to pray and those that God is calling to surrender. Surrender is really, really, really important. If your Christian life is not working at the moment and you're unsurrendered, that will be why. Or that is where you have to start. For we find our life through losing it and we gain our life through giving it away. Oh, we thank you, Lord, for your grace.